0: Hey, hey, beer fans! Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn.
1: And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest retailers, and it makes perfect Christmas stocking stuffers. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas.
0: And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and finding a way to check it out. There
1: you go. And on today's episode, we're not. Heading to the pub. Uh, in fact, today's episode is going to be just a little bit different because we got into a discussion with a couple of the fine folks at Chris Malting about their Heritage Malt project. And well, you know one of those things where a good conversation just seems to keep going and going and never really quite stops? That <laughs> happened here.
0: Especially when the people you're talking to are drinking beer freely. Yeah, it made me thirsty the whole time. I know. Drew and I weren't drinking. These guys were. But, you know, it's going to be a real different episode. We're going to run an hour or maybe even a little bit more of our conversation with the uh, three guys from Crisp. And it's just some fascinating info. And I can't wait to get out there and brew with the malts.
1: Absolutely. Now, of course, first, we have to have a message
0: from the people who make this show possible. That's right. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, publishers of Zymergy Magazine, organizers of HomebrewCon, and enjoyers of homebrew. Join your friends in fermentation at homebrewersassociation.org.
1: And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support.
0: Welcome back, everybody. Before we move on to Crisp Heritage Malts, we have an announcement or two for you.
1: Yeah, just a couple things to take care of because there's always business to be done. If you haven't watched your podcast feed or you haven't gone to the website, there was a new episode of the Brew Files last week, episode 108, and what I called What Makes the West Best, where Danny and I break down three possible versions of the West Coast IPA, or if you're Denny, two possible versions of the West Coast IPA,
0: well, um, you know, there's th- there's three possible. One of them is I just don't believe in.
1: <laughs> it's like the tooth fairy. Yeah, that's um, right, man. <laughs> so go and listen to that episode. We'll talk all about, you know, what we do in order to make a good West Coast IPA and, you know, of the various varieties that may or may not exist. So just go give it a listen. You'll learn something, I hope. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts, click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers Friends, or BIO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is
0: its Project Freedom Ride. They're an organization that uh, brings dogs from Texas and Georgia up to the Pacific Northwest to find new homes with people who will love them forever like me and our dog, Britain. Uh, she's our annoying.
1: Occasional, our, our occasional guest star.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Britain does show up occasionally. Uh, she's annoying, but I love her dearly. And you guys can help people get their own annoying, but dearly loved dogs by going to experimentalbrew.com, clicking on the Patreon link and tossing us whatever you can afford for us to pass on to project freedom ride,
1: project freedom ride, introducing dogs to love and climate change shock. that's right man (laughs) (laughs) okay and before we get into the crisp talk today uh i have a couple of things that we have to do so first off it's time for your feedback Feedback. that's right we had one piece of feedback coming so far as we're recording this on the ipa show uh rob stewart left a comment on our website saying when i first tried sierra nevada and new albion pale ales It was a game-changer for a 21-year-old looking for more and better flavor in beer. I remember very well that Ballantine IPA was briefly available in Southern California, although I have now learned that it was a later, mass-produced version. Right after that, Rainier's Ale became my go-to, largely because it was strong, full of flavor, and inexpensive. At the time, I thought the flavor of Rainier's was very similar to Ballantine's IPA, but I wonder if that was a result of my youth and naivete. What do you think?
0: I think probably so, but uh, yeah, man, when I first moved here to Oregon 45 years ago, Rainier Ale, the Green Death, was all over, and that was a very popular beer then.
1: Yeah, and yeah, what's amazing to me is the Green Death lasted until, what, 2016 when Pabst, uh, who owns (laughs) the Rainier rights,
0: It might have. I stopped drinking it way before then.
1: No, I I, I wouldn't. I looked this up because I I was like, wait, when did that go away? Paps discontinued in 2016. By the time that its run ended, and I'm fairly certain for most of its run, it was really kind of just a, a malt liquor. Yep. Uh, and so the last versions, because I do remember having some of it about 2010 or so, the last versions of it were really kind of more of like eel malt liquor, like an old English 800, right? That uh, idea. Now, when I went looking for some more detail to see whether or not there was a reason why Rob may have, you know, said, hey, you know, reminded me of Valentine's, I came across in 2013, a bunch of the breweries in San Francisco for their Strong Beer Week or Strong Beer Month decided to do a homage to the Green Death. And they put together a recipe, and it was 70% pale malt, 30% corn, and then hopped to hell with Cluster. And 7.3. But what I thought was interesting is in that article was not only that sort of brief outline of a recipe, but they did mention that in the past it had been more amber and hoppy. So there may be a reason Rob is drawing that conclusion. But I'm swearing, given the what I'm reading there, you know, probably in the late 70s, I think it was probably already making that transition to, into just pure up malt liquor.
0: Yeah, I, I think so, too. Uh, uh, probably I haven't had... Rainier Ale since probably OG's oh eighty, eighty-one, something like that, and I remember it back then as just being kind of like your basic malt liquor.
1: Yeah, good old seven point three percent, and easy to drink and cheap, dangerous quantities. Yeah, and cheap, always cheap. Yeah, and, so, and it would always make you feel like the Green Death.
0: Oh so, man, would there we did it go?
1: All right. And that's our one piece of feedback there. We've got a couple of other things coming up. So don't forget, please send us your feedback at podcast at com, or you can always text or leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1-ale. That's 626-765-1253. And then a little uh, correctional department of corrections time, and really this is a uh, actually a self correction on my point because as I was editing together the episode on what makes the West best, I realized that we had missed a point in our discussion about whirlpooling, because uh, to set the stage, Denny does not whirlpool, he doesn't he doesn't really believe that he gets a good benefit from it, at least in comparison to what he gets from dry hopping. I do do whirlpooling. Now, one of the one of the points that we did miss real quick was that one of the advantages of whirlpooling is that you do get bitterness from the whirlpool hops, like you don't from, say, dry hopping. I mean, you do get a different sort of bitterness from dry hopping with all those, what is it, cohumilones? Uh, um, uh, polyphenols. Well, polyphenols, yeah. But um, you, you do get a different sort of bitterness from dry hopping than you do from kettle additions. So whirlpooling, yes, you do pick up bitterness. Of course, you can always adjust your kettle additions to get the same bitterness out of there, which I assume is what you do, Danny.
0: Uh, yeah, I I do. I mean, I never worried about how much bitterness I was getting from whirlpool hops, uh, but I, you know, I I do oftentimes when I'm making a very hoppy beer do a flame-out addition, so I'm getting a little bittering from that too.
1: Yep. So that's just a little extra context that uh, to put into the episode. Sorry, we didn't put it in originally, but I figured I'd talk about that before somebody else emailed us to go. Burr, 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 burr.
0: Yeah, it, it may or may not matter, but uh, technically that is correct. And technically correct is the best sort of correct. <laughs> Reality often astonishes theory. Uh, all I right. love saying that. I know you do. Uh, let's go <laughs> ahead and let's get into the lounge.
1: Let's go sit down and let's go talk some malt.
0: Yep, we have uh, a lot of great info and a lot of fun conversation for you guys. So we're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll be into part one of the conversation with the guys from Crisp Malting. Does your fermenter need to have Wi Fi? Not necessarily. But is a Wi Fi enabled fermenter incredibly useful? You bet. Using the grandfather app, brewers can monitor and adjust fermentation from anywhere in the world. A feature that could come in handy if you want to start a diacetyl rest while sipping an umbrella drink on the beach. The new and improved Grainfather Conical Fermenter Pro is constructed from 304 stainless steel and has a total work capacity of 8 gallons, making it just the right size for your 5-gallon batches with plenty of headspace. A -a 1.5-inch tri-clamp on the lid allows up to 2 PSI of top pressure for work transfers, and the 2-inch tri-clamp port on the bottom of the cone makes true dumps a snap. Particularly nifty is the dual-function valve that lets you transfer and sample beer or pull yeast using the same valve. The integrated 12-volt, 30-watt heating element makes it easy to gently warm your fermenter, while a built-in cooling sleeve only needs to be connected to an optional chiller to get the temperature down. The new and improved Grandfather Conical Fermenter Pro is available now at Grainfather.com or at a homebrew shop near you. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon High Desert Farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle jaded chillers aren't just works of art they're the fastest most effective chillers you can buy check them out at jadedbrewing.com Yakima Chief Hops is a proud supporter of the global homebrewing community. We believe that homebrewers are at the true heart of craft beer. YCH is dedicated to supplying the brewing hobbyists, the homebrew side hustlers, and the late-night garage brewers with the same cutting-edge quality hop products as the brewers working on a 90-barrel tank. Yakima Chief is pleased to introduce the latest product in hop innovation right out of the R&D lab. Cryopop Original Blend. Combining their proprietary cryogenic hop processing technology with groundbreaking lab analysis, they've engineered a hop pellet packed with the most beer-soluble compounds to bring a true pop of tropical, stone fruit, and citrus aromas. Learn more at yakimachief.com
1: The Brew Deck Podcast features exclusive interviews with your favorite brewers and suppliers. Each episode highlights new trends and brewing tips from leaders in the industry to inspire your next brew. Listen to the Brew Deck Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: seasons bring new brewing adventures with Y yeast's belgian summer private collection featuring 3463 forbidden fruit 3942 belgian wheat and 5151 britannomyces clasenae these premium liquid yeast strains bring you the opportunity to enhance your skills and elevate your experimental side the dynamic fruitiness, spicy phenolics, and complex esters balance well with the malts, hops, and specialty ingredients of Belgian styles. For an adventurous twist, add seasonal fruit and berries. Or try Brett C with its tropical tartness in your next creative fermentation. These strains were available now through the end of September. Visit whyeastlab.com for homebrewing recipes, tips, and more about which styles pair best with these strains. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. We're back, and welcome here to The Lounge, where we have conversations with people, and boy, do we have a conversation today, huh?
1: Yeah, I'm going to warn you, this one is sort of discursive, it goes everywhere, uh, lots of, uh, uh, well, I guess, kind of ribbing each other, you know, the sort of thing that happens <laughs> over a couple of pints of beer.
0: Yeah, and, and remember... uh this was done online, so the audio audio quality uh, is not pristine, but it's good. But
1: just to give you guys some background, we've discovered from our friends at BSG and Crisp that Chris has been working on a heritage malt project, and really what that means is going back and resurrecting barley malt varieties that had existed in the past, been used very popularly in the past, and then you know had gone away for various reasons that we'll get into. Uh, you guys may have seen some. You guys may have seen a lot of love given to Wiremen for their Barker Pills, which is the same sort of idea. Let's take an older malt variety. Let's bring it back. So we're sitting down with Colin Johnston, David Griggs, and Mike Benson of Crisp Malting to discuss the four different heritage malts that these guys have worked long and hard to bring back and make available to all of us who love to make beer.
0: And Drew and I have samples of all of these, and we're going to be brewing uh, with them <laughs> probably like the same recipe with each malt, uh, just to compare the flavors from them. So that's going to take a while, but we'll let you know how that goes too.
1: Oh yes. Expect more
0: updates. (laughs) Yeah, right. We'll be talking more about it in the meantime, though, grab yourself a beer unless you're driving, sit back, relax, and check out the conversation with the guys from crisp.
1: Okay. And as we said in the intro, we normally talk a lot about hops on this show because you all are hop crazy. Denny is hop crazy, I'm hop crazy But what good is hops if we don't have malt to help give it some base notes A little bit of sweetness and something to play off of And to that extent, we're here talking a little bit about malt With some folks from Crisp, one of my favorite maltsters So guys, why don't we go around the table and you all introduce yourselves And we'll start with you, uh, Mike
2: So, hi everyone, Uh, I'm Mike Benson Um, I started in brewing... In 2002, as a lab technician, and then throughout the years, worked my way up, uh, becoming brew manager in 2013, and then later uh, head brewer. Um, I joined Crisp two years ago in 2019, and I look after the West of England,
3: Wales, Scotland, and a little bit of Europe. All right, Dave. I'm Dr. David Quiggs. I'm coming up to 31 years. In the malting industry, um, I've been with Crisp for eight years. And I'm technical director. I want to know everything about everything, apparently. I like that.
4: <laughs> <laughs> All right, and la- lastly, Colin. Hey, everyone. Um, I'm Colin Johnston. I lead the sales and marketing team for Craft for Crisp. Um, and I've been with the company for, oh, five years next week um which has flown Ooh. by um but before that um yeah, dude, Party time. Uh, <laughs> i i will be expecting bottles in the post yes um i uh, um i started outside. in the industry <laughs> yeah cheap englishman right um <laughs> i started in the industry in two thousand and uh nine and, uh, yeah, I started working in craft breweries in Glasgow and then started working in Scotland's largest brewery as well. So I've done engineering roles, production roles, quality roles. Um, I've been involved in building breweries and designing them and, um, yeah, all that kind of stuff. And But I've been doing this current um, job for about a year. And Before that, I was territory manager for Scotland, um, which Mike has the absolute pleasure to do now. So, yeah, and I cross over quite a lot between brewing and distilling as well.
1: Great. Denny, do you feel that we're outclassed in terms of knowledge here?
0: Uh, just a bit,
2: Drew. <laughs> <laughs> wait, and see, wait and see how
0: we do
3: with it. You can reassess it. <laughs> Listen to the answers first.
0: I'll bet I'm older than anybody else. so At least I've got that going for me.
2: I don't yeah. know, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. No. <laughs> The have I, have
3: my, I have to hold my hand. I was the oldest of the crisp team. There you go. All right. You don't look well, Dave. It's all, it's all You're experience, very kind, Dave. Mr. Benson. Yes, something
1: <laughs> like that. The only yeah. thing that matters is I consider myself to be the prettiest. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's, yeah, I have that drama as well. <laughs>
1: yeah. Alright, well hey, so let's, let's dig into this because Denny and I, we were both very fortunate to receive some uh well, some nice little bags of malt here, but let's let's dig into the into the into the whole history of this because I mean Crisp has been around for a good long time. And whenever I think of, you know, making any sort of British beer and actually a lot of times even when I make a lot of my own IPAs, West Coast included, I almost inevitably reach for crisp otter. I have a I have a a whole container of it sitting out in my garage behind me behind me. So well acquainted with it, but now you guys are bringing forth heritage malts. So can uh, can someone tell me what exactly classifies something as a heritage malt?
3: <sighs> on, excellent, first, excellent first question. <laughs> How long we got? <laughs> How long we got? Exactly. I don't think there is any clear definition of what is a heritage malt. I mean, I, my colleagues may even disagree with me on this, but I don't really think Mary is a heritage malt because it's been in continuous production since it was first introduced back in 1965. I think the true heritage malts are those which have gone out of use, you know, virtually become extinct and then have been resurrected in the way that we've resurrected Chevalier and we've resurrected uh, Hannah and we've resurrected Plumage is This is mining the seed banks, mining the archive for... You know, rare, a rare seed in order to virtually grow it from five seeds back up to commercial, commercial quantities. Mm -hmm. Uh, One or two of our competitors have got heritage malts, which were from the 1990s, which I really don't think is a heritage, is a heritage variety.
1: Well, I did want to back up and just point out you'd mentioned Maris Otter because in the world of barley malt, Maris Otter is A
3: radical outlier,
1: right? I mean, it's been around for, what, since the 60s?
3: 65.
1: Yep. And so it's highly unusual for any malt variety to last that long in the market, right? Yep. So every time somebody's brewing with a a bit of Otter, they're brewing with a piece of living history. I'm glad it's still around. (laughs) But how... I mean, you, jo- you joked about people having malts from the 1990s listed as heritage malts. Like, for somebody who's not in the middle of all this, how often are we actually seeing barley varieties sort of shifted in, in the crop cycle? You know, like, how how fast does something come in? How, how fast does it go out?
3: I mean, that's, that's changed over time. Uh, I mean, sort of going back to some of the varieties I mentioned, I mean, Plumage Archer was the first truly bred multiple varieties from two distinct parents, and that was around right through to the 1960s uh, marisotta came in in the 1960s and that was the mainstay of the british brewing industry really through to the late 1980s but over that time period other varieties have, have come and gone and certainly in in uk the driver behind this is the fact that the plant breeders get a royalty on the sale of seeds, so there's a there's a real driver there to get your varieties into the marketplace. And it takes about 10 years from that initial selection of parents and the initial cross to bring a variety through to, to its commercial reality. And now we see varieties, and if they last 10 years in commercial production, they've done well. And we often see that there are sort of periods of dominance by particular varieties uh Otto has been around you say six since, since sixty five it was almost on its last legs in the late in the late eighties uh and it was maintained and repurified and it's where it is today which is the second biggest winter barley being grown in in the u k so it's got something about it that people like
1: yeah i mean for me i've always just liked the the fact that for a a relatively pale malt, it still actually has a firm enough malt character and a little bit of that breadiness and toastiness. So it doesn't disappear like say a lot of modern uh, two row malts do. Where they're they're brewed or they're made basically just for maximal sugar efficiency or starch conversion. So there's something kind of nice about having marisada as a good base note to a beer, I think.
3: Absolutely. mean, well, we've done some flavors, some quite sophisticated. Uh, analysis to, to identify that there are different flavour volatiles associated with, with Maris Otter to more modern bowling varieties. So there certainly seems to be something to support the, you know, the subjective view that it is distinct and different to, to other varieties. And Mike, right, right when you brew with Otter, it's fairly forgiving. Yeah, I mean, you can get away with whatever you like
2: with Otter, but going back to the flavour as well, it's it's got this complexity um that no other malt can kind of stack up to uh, around mouthfeel to really bring out uh, like hop aromas and hop flavours in in modern beers as well so we've got this great resurgence that's going on because it's 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 basically laying the platform for for hops to shine but as far as brewing with it, it's really forgiving. Um, you know it's going to be a nice, easy brew day whenever you brew with Marisota. In, in, like I mean, e- in terms of
0: what? I mean, easy in terms of what? You mean, just like it, it's going to convert well, It's you're not going to get a stuck runoff, that kind of stuff? Or am I missing a- something?
2: Absolutely everything. It, it's going to mash, and it's going to it's going to mash well. You're going to get conversion. Without any issues, you, it's going to run off without any issues. It's going to boil, and you're going to get a lovely warm break, and you're going to get a lovely cold break, and it's going to ferment without any issues. And then when you come to filter it or, or not filter it, put it into package, it's just going to perform all the way through.
1: See, Denny, wow. this is why I think I like it. It allows me to completely, <laughs> <be> completely
2: separate. <laughs> yeah, really, man. <laughs> all right. Well, why worry? Brewing's hard enough at times. Why worry about the the, the malts?
0: Yeah. My my motto is make the best beer possible with the least effort possible while having the most fun possible. (laughs) And uh, yes, that sounds sounds like the way to do it, man. It It sounds like a a
2: painful tattoo, but hell yes.
1: we'll just start making that uh, initials, and then people can say. <laughs> All right. Well, so we're talking a little bit about Marisotter and like Marisotter would be a heritage malt if it hadn't gone away. Uh, you guys are there's now this whole uh, crisp heritage malt campaign that you guys are doing with these four new malts, or new. Here are the quotes, people. Uh, malts, they're they're coming back. So why? You know, why as a brewer should I want to play with these heritage malts? I mean, Mike, you said Marisotter already makes for an easy day. Why am I going to try and muck it up?
2: <laughs> because why would you want a simple life when you can get an excellent flavor?
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, we all want a nice easy brew day, but do we really?
1: <laughs> I, don't know, I think there are, there are definitely some people who are masochists out there. <laughs>
2: Um, so, yeah, uh, we we know, we know looking through the difference between, as Dave says, there's differences between Marisotto and modern varieties uh, that we can go back and analyse and we can see there's a difference. And it's definitely the same as we go further back through Plumage, through Chevalier, through Hannah Malt as well. Mm-hmm. These older varieties, while quite difficult at times to brew with, give the brewer something... Really, really special that modern bolts just cannot replicate. So it's a little bit more hard work for the brewery, but the, the results you get in the final beer are, are just stunningly awesome.
1: So let's talk through that then. What, you say harder to work with the brewery, or harder in the brewery. Um, give me an idea when you say that. You know, we'd said that Maris Otter's a dream. What, you, what are we looking at with these heritage malts are more work?
2: So with, with something like um, Chevalier, um, you're, you're not going to get the same enzyme activity that you get with a, a modern malt. And it's a, it, it's a lot more complex um, sugar spectrum. So it, it's definitely going to need a, a, a longer stand time than normal. So if you'd normally do a 65-degree stand in... in In centigrade, sorry, I don't know the the Fahrenheit to that. um, For for 60 minutes, you're probably going to need to do a 75, 90 minute stand just to get, just to make sure you get that conversion.
1: (laughs) Right, and that that goes with like Denny and I are also very fond of saying that modern malts are so enzymatically hot that they kind of convert if you stare at them funny.
4: Yeah, and that's certainly true. It's certainly true of American uh, uh, barleys for sure. Um yeah so but, yeah as mike said some of these older varieties the is certainly not there and the i guess um you know if Maris Otter is like a nice easy introduction to brewing for you know if if you just started out in home brewing and it's such a great malt to work with but you know if you want to if you want to level up and really start start you know understanding the the science and the dynamics of your mash then you know what and essentially what you what you put in to that process you get out you know tenfold when you're working with these heritage malts because they they are you know they're they're certainly more esoteric they're harder to work with and mm-hmm. um, but the rewards around them are are absolutely incredible um like if yeah as Mike was saying you mash a valet for you know 60 minutes it's going to probably finish fairly sweet mash it for 90 minutes though and give it almost like a 90 minute or 2 hour boil, boil. The colour development, the richness of the flavour—it's absolutely incredible. Uh, Mike and I were in a brewery uh, just this week, actually, in Scotland, where they did a 100% Chevalier mash, and we tasted the beer out of tank. I mean, I I thought there were five malts in it. I was—I was like, what? And what other? What what else went into the grist? And they were like, no, no, that's just that's 100% Chevalier. You get like a 90-minute boil. I was blown away. Absolutely blown away.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, the colour of
4: flavour was yeah. astonishing. And it really it comes back to the genetics, you know, because and, and Dave can speak about, a bit about this, but you know, so many of the modern varieties can all really trace their lineage back, um, you know, one one sort of direction, and we've lost all these all all this genetic diversity um, from these older varieties that got discontinued, these potential branch points that. Have been cut away from the tree. Um, and, and essentially, what we are doing now is going away and, and rediscovering those. And we've picked varieties that, you know, it's not just random what we've done. We've, we've looked at things that had a prominence in, in brewing history. You know, they were massively popular uh, throughout, throughout brewing history, either in Europe or in the UK. And, and it just kind of logic says they were popular for a very, very, very good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you look at the history books of, you know, Chevalier, for example, you know, born 1820, it was the dominant malt variety for almost a 100 years in the UK. Throughout that, like, golden period of IPA production um, that everybody dreams about, you know, when Burton and Edinburgh and places like this were pumping out tens of thousands of barrels and sending it all over the world, it would have been Chevalier that they were using um and then you know same goes for hannah it's the it's the original Czech Moravian barley variety that would have been used in the very first Pilsner in eighteen forty two um again you know massively popular uh, uh, barley variety uh, that spawned basically the invention of an entirely new style of beer, which is of course with us to this day so there's you know you're you're not just tapping into flavor but you're tapping into some you know like real geeky but awesome brewing history with these varieties mm-hmm. um there's there's something I, I think there's just something quite romantic about them actually um when you think about the the history connected with them um but it's it's also it's not been easy has it dave In actually <laughs> no, bringing, them back, from, bringing <laughs> them back from the dead
3: <laughs> no every year is a challenge with these these rice i think that's the key thing that people have got to remember these are old varieties so you know When we first came back with Chevalier and we had our first sizeable harvest of it, it was the first time it had been grown commercially on any scale in the UK for, you know, probably 80 or 90 years. So there was no one alive that had grown it. There was no one alive that had made malt with it. And there was no one alive that had brewed with it. So every every stage of the process, there was a relearning uh, to go through. And you know we can't chase it through the maltings maybe quite as quickly as we can do a modern variety. And equally, when the brewer gets gets the malt into the brewery, he's got to think 1850s, not 2021, in how he how he handles it. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of relearning to be done to get the the very best out of these these varieties. They you know they tend to accumulate a little bit more protein. Than, than more modern varieties, so that that obviously has a, has an impact on uh, on some of the processability of them. But I'm very fortunate to be sitting here this evening, drinking a Hannah beer, uh, and the colour is just incredible. And that's the one thing we've noticed with Hannah; it's probably the palest malt that we've that we make in that variety. And I think that is that's really why it was selected for you know for Pilsners when they were first. Going into gl- we're drinking out of glasses rather than the metal tankers. because it was such a clean, clear colour.
1: Dave, thanks for answering the question because I heard that can opening somewhere there in the background. <laughs> I'm
3: going to do one too. Here we go.
1: <laughs> Hold
4: on. <laughs> it's not just that wasn't a very lead pot. Oh, there we go. There's there's a can being opened. Mm. Buy, I've also got a Hannah. Oh, actually for a different brewery, I think though. Um, in mind, so a
3: Red Willow Red Willow Svelte Log of 12 oh, Plato. I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs>
2: Did you not take your can with you to France? I do have like, the can. It, it, it's, I have the can. It's open.
4: So I, I've difficult. got
2: the same as you. I've got the New Barnes one. But yeah. The New Barnes one's stunning, but the, 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 I, I love the Red Willow one as well. I had
3: to find um, the secret stash. <laughs> I need to find
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of, the, one of the things I like about the... the Beer world, secret stashes, and everybody's sharing the beers around. So, because I think everybody's got a little bit of pride, right? And particularly when you're playing around with new ingredients like this, or new to us, I should say. Um, <clears throat> Dave, one thing I think is funny is that as you're sitting there talking about, you know, all the stuff that you had to relearn, it's amazing to think that, I mean, even with the Chevalier, you're talking, uh, you know, 100 plus years ago, but all that knowledge that's lost in that short period of time. Mm. And it's just kind of, it makes you kind of stop and wonder, like, along the way, what other little bits of knowledge and useful things have we forgotten because, you know, the, the various bits and bobs have gone away. Um, <clears throat> I also will say that hearing you guys talk about these malts <clears throat> puts me in the mind of, you know, the folks out there who go digging through old brewery archives, you know, so like Ron Pattinson, Martin Corn- Cornall, and and others who are out there, like, researching original beer recipes, one of the things I've always thought about is, you know, what do you do with the fact that we don't have those ingredients anymore? Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, as you just said, you know, hey, you, we now have access to, like, the malt that was originally IPA, you know, that, that was that backbone. I mean, to me, that's very exciting. That's very cool.
3: Um, that, that, that's certainly what we've promoted. If, you know, if you're going to make a heritage beer, you need to use heritage ingredients. It, if you're trying to reproduce the beer as it was, mm-hmm. um, so but equally, these 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 malts work equally well in modern styles as well. I'm sure Colin, we've had some guys that would do New England IPAs out of, out of some of our heritage material, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, there's uh, the
4: yeah, I think you know the stuff, the research that Ron does is absolutely painstaking, and Martin Cornell, and um, he's, he's quite local to us actually mm-hmm. in Norfolk. Um, the, the 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 things they dig up, it's absolutely incredible. Um, but uh, it, it, you know, kind of coming back to what Mike was saying earlier on about about um, Maris Otter giving that base, you know, well, it's it's certainly true of. Um, these each of these different heritage malts for the specific styles that we can, we're, we're kind of suggesting that you use them for. Um, you know, I b- before I uh, before the show, I was having a three a, percent a hazy IPA, and it, the, and and for the, in the UK, we um, there's there's a real market developing now for that lower EBV, mm-hmm whether it, it it could be non non-alcoholic so actually getting down below 0.5 but but certainly kind of almost like table beers well you, and and people also want low sugar you know there's 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 some real kind of uh demands within the industry for certain beer you know characteristics but people still want flavor well what we're discovering with these with these older varieties is the actual genetics are giving you a really really rich background um, even at lower ABVs, lower OGs, um, and sort of standard PGs, and 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 th- th- I think that really, as I say, that really does come down to the barley genetics, you know, and and lines of of um, barley varieties that that were lost a long time ago. Um, so when you're working with newer styles or with yeah, so it could be low ABV, it could be um, it could be super, super hoppy as well. Um, if you've got a malt in there that's got absolutely nothing to stand up to the hops, then um, for me personally, I think it lacks balance. You know, mm-hmm. it's just all like I love hops. I absolutely do. You know, and we we you know the UK industry goes pretty crazy for um, for American hops, um, but you you've got to have something on the malt side that's gonna um, that's gonna support it. Um, and um, I'm really sorry, but for me, you know, American Turo just doesn't cut it. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. it's got to be, uh, it's going to be something a bit bolder than that. So um, yeah, there's, I think there's some great uses for it in more modern styles. I had a, I had a steam beer. Sorry, we're not allowed to call it that. So our California <laughs> Common, uh, a California Common that um, that was made with uh, Chevalier a couple of years ago. We brewed for CBC um, with uh, you know good old Northern Brewer and. Um, yeah, it was it was just fantastic. It just worked really, really well. Um, so there's there's it's uh, yeah they're they're kind of, they can be used right across the right across the spectrum. I would say um, I wouldn't necessarily put Chevalier in a beer that's got loads and loads of different um, specialty malts in there because mm. it's probably going to get crowded out. Um, but but then I don't know maybe maybe Mike you have a, a different opinion on that. Would you would you put it in something with a a, a dark um, roast malt though, as well.
2: I, yeah, I mean, it, it's horses for with courses with, with some of these things. I, I I don't necessarily think of the heritage malts and then think heritage beers. So I'm just drinking this New Balance Hannah now, I'm I'm drinking that and just thinking, my God, that is just a stunning beer. It's so soft, it's it's beautiful. And then we come to Chevalier. It, you know, it's amazing. If you, you've got to brew a, a barley wine, it, it's perfect for that. But it's not going to be great if you want to produce a session IPA. If you're using it as 100% as, as the base malt, it's, it's, it's just too powerful for that. But if it's, it comes in, if you start using it as a speciality in that particular instance and you start adding it in 20 30% of the grist, then it starts to really bring some, some lovely flavours to it and also really start to, to boost the body of the beer without overriding the, the hot flavours uh, that you're after. So all of the malts can be used in pretty much any beer, it's just selecting the right grist um, addition for that particular beer.
4: Yeah, I think those are real, there's a real kind of art to base malt selection. Um, and again, I think it's, it's one of these things that you get into as you get more advanced as a brewer. And um, when you're first starting out, you know, you, you kind of have your safe word. It's Marisotter mm-hmm. <laughs> or something similar. Um, you, that's your go-to. And it's, and it's, you know, it, it, it you know, it works in all seasons and it's, it's going to do a job for you. Um, but once you start really starting to dial in your recipes, um, playing up with base malts is, um, I think, really, really important, mm-hmm. and it's and the pro brewers do it as well. Um, that I think that I don't know, 20 years ago, for example, you know, the pro brewers would have maybe just gone with one base malt, and that would have been that would have been their you know 80% of what they purchased from maltster. But I think what we are mm-hmm. seeing now is people really chopping and changing an awful lot, depending on the different styles that they're making. People are making a lot more styles as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Every week, people seem to be, diff, you know, doing different beers um, because consumers want to know what's new, um, and so in, introducing lots of different bass malts into your into your repertoire um, is is really important. It's but it but it is like literally learning lots and lots of different musical instruments. You, you know, you've you've got to really sort of um, Build up your skill with each of these base malts and understand what each of them is going to bring to the um, going to bring to that kind of that beery symphony. To extend the metaphor a little okay. bit, um, like like plumage Archer for example, it's it. What we are finding is it's it's awesome in fruit forward beers and sours, um, and 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 certainly in like really juicy hazy IPAs as well. Um, it's it is pretty clean um but it's got it's got a body that supports it as well and it's almost got its own fruit character in addition which really complements um those styles of beers um now now where does that come from we we don't really know um there's, there's there must be a, a there's a protein element in there for sure um but there's there's something in you know there's something in the chemistry there in terms of um you know ester formation with the um, during fermentation that, uh, that that kind of enhances uh, these fruit flavors so um, oh we're de- going to
1: start getting into biotransformation of malt characters
4: <laughs> biotransformation <laughs> of malt oh my god there's a paper to be had out of this. Um, so um so there's uh, yeah there's i think it's a case of, it's a case of trying them and, and seeing uh, and seeing what works for the different styles um, that you that you're brewing with um for sure
1: well yeah. um, and i think to go back to kind of part of your metaphor, what I've started to notice, at least here in the U S and particularly in my area around Los Angeles is I am watching more of my local craft brewers playing around with more different bass molds, you know, trying different things. And I kind of think of it like, I mean, if you ever meet a a really serious guitarist, they never have one guitar. You know, they always have like 20,000 guitars um, because each of them brings a different note um, or a different tone to what they're doing. And so what I am noticing is like, okay, yeah, fine. You still got a lot of your two row pail in the wall to your, to your earlier point. It works for some things, but not for, it does not it for does. everything. I was being mildly facetious, but yeah.
4: Yes. yeah.
1: <laughs> um, but you know, and, and I do see people, uh, I do see uh, brewers around here breaking out marisada as well on the commercial set, the size. Uh, but like one of the places I'm seeing a lot of the playing happening is obviously a lot of our craft breweries are becoming, you know, oh hey, we need to also have a lager or a pilsner or this particular type of pilsner. And I'm starting to see them play around a lot there where, okay, hey, we've got Wireman Bohemian Floor Malted and uh the Wireman Barca to put it into the heritage uh category. And so we are starting to see some more people play playing around with craft malts, for instance. Like yeah, and as you were saying about learning how to manipulate a recipe with your with your base malts, listeners, longtime listeners will know that Denny was always trying to make a an American inflected mild, right? Uh, he and I are both mild fans, and he wanted to make one that was sort of American in character. And he never could get it right until he finally broke into using some American craft malted malt, right? You know, from one of our small maltsters, and suddenly that brought a whole new set of characters to the beer that actually made it work, right? So. uh, learning the notes i think is a good uh, or learning the tones of the malts is i think a good way to put it
4: it's um i I think it's amazing to see actually this um this movement in the u.s around craft malt um uh, dave and i have both attended the the craft monsters guild conference um it went back 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 in those heady days when we could travel across the atlantic um and um it's awesome um I, uh, I met the guys from Admiral
0: mm-hmm.
4: um, at the conference, and they were showing me some pictures of their of their floor and of all their kit and I was like, "Hey that, that's, that looks like our stuff." And they were like, "Oh yeah, we came and visited you guys, and we took pictures of yeah. all your equipment and we just like <laughs> copied it because we thought it was so amazing And um, th- you know there are only three floor maltings left in England. There, there are some in the distilleries up in Scotland. Um, you know we, we still have our original Number nineteen floor maltings, which uh, which dates back to the beginning of our site, beginning of our company in eighteen seventy, um, and to see a, a kind of revival or a or a, a reinvention almost of floor malting happening in other parts of the world, mm-hmm. it's 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 amazing. It's like a, yeah, it, it's like a, fr- a fraternity, um, and as a result. You've got craft maltsters in the US, sort of um, adding their yeah, adding new invention and new innovation to the to the industry. And for us, I think it's, it's super super exciting. And I guess for us, the heritage is our kind of offering. And um, to that, uh, you know, it's, it's it's what we've brought along to the party. Um, because there's there's just some really cool stuff going on. It's great to see that those skills. Um, are surviving and thriving indeed in a, in a new way, um, in the US. Um, and we're, we're, we're doing our bit. All of the, all of the heritage malts are put through, we, we put them through the, the floor maltings because we feel like, well, first of all, it's, it's just the right thing to do from a tradition perspective, but also right. because each of them, you know, has, has their own nuance when it comes to the actual malting. Like Dave was saying, you can't, you can't just force them through like modern varieties. You've really got to, you know, work with them a bit longer. And the floors are the perfect environment for us to be able to do that. We can take our time with it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like I say, it's it's um, yeah, it's it's so, it's so it's it's pretty exciting, I think. Anyway, when when I see what's going on with the, with craft malt in the US, do you, do you agree, I, Dave? I
2: look- you-
3: uh, absolutely. I mean, I went, went I went to the last. Uh, in person conference in, uh, in Colorado. And what's nice for me, I, no offence to those people that love hops. It's just nice to be in a room full of people who just want to talk about malt. <laughs> they don't mention hops. They want to talk about malt and malt flavour. It's a malt processing. So it's a, yeah, they're a great group of guys. And, uh, yeah, the guys at Adman I think we can almost sort of say they're almost affiliated a little bit to us because they, they did take up on our on our kit and they're good guys and uh and i think that the whole floor malt you know we know again that there's a difference in flavor for malt that comes off of the floor maltings in comparison to a modern pneumatic malting so you know that's where some of these differences are coming through as well even on, on modern varieties just the way in which they're handled and the way in which they're processed on the, on the floor malt.
4: Well, they can. And they've got time to do it as well, and the scale. It's just like craft beer, isn't it? You know that uh, mm. the, the, the big brewers they didn't have the time to explore all these different styles in the beer world. They didn't have the time to, um, uh, yeah, just to, to dig into the history books and uh, and really sort of uh, you know re- reinvent the past. Well, I guess yeah, that's what the the craft maltzers are doing, and it's. Uh, the guys and gals doing it over in the US—it's—it's uh, it's awesome to. It really is awesome to see.
1: Well, and it's also fun to see what sort of uh, gear they kind of bodge together, because I've seen I've seen some of our smaller craft monsters. Uh, uh, very interesting kludgy
4: gear that they've made, but it still works. Mm. It works. It works. You know, yeah. it's um, it's ultimately, it's like. Uh, it's like brewing as well, though, isn't it? You know, you could have the fanciest kit in the world, and you could make some fairly terrible beer, but you can knock out some really good beer on some very, very simple, bodged together kit. And um, you know, the same goes for for malting. It's um, there's there's definitely in the modern industry a lot of science goes into it for sure. Um, I think but, uh, it's the it's the oldest. Now, what, what what do you say, Dave? It's the oldest biotechnology.
3: It, it's the technology, technology and civilization. Absolutely, There, was it. Yep. Yeah, there wasn't beer
2: until there was malt. So. Hmm. I, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Colin, by talking about uh, that the, the doesn't really matter about the kit, because ultimately, the and, and brewing are, the, you know, they're intertwined. The the, the the two processes are quite similar, and it's more about time and attention than anything else. So, like you say, the stuff on the floors is generally slower and cooler and, and, you know, you let it take its time. And that goes back to the same with what we brew in producing the brewery. Generally, you know, if we know we take our time with it, we know we get it right, we get awesome beer. So the the, the two processes are intertwined.
1: Yeah, it's funny that you got, in human history, you've got Bakeries, breweries, and maltsters all kind of all adjacent to each other, all needing each other to to exist.
4: And it's happened in the baking world. I mean, slight digression for this podcast for sure. But you know, I think there was an awful lot of people that got into bread making during uh, during the lockdown, um, and I was definitely one of them. I think Dave was as well. I've got that right? Yeah, Dave and I have shared sourdough pictures back and forth on WhatsApp. <laughs> Don't tell everybody. Okay, sorry. Did I just? (laughs) It's a secret. Did I just out you as a sourdough maker? So, um, uh, you know that, but but it's the exact same thing. You know, it's 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 that idea. You know, the sourdough movement is all about going right back to the, you know, right back to the early days of bread making when you didn't have commercialized yeast. You didn't have a quick shortcut. It wasn't just about following. A recipe to the letter. It's about taking the time um, and and really using your senses um, to to um, to improve and to iterate. You know something a, a really really fantastic food stuff. Um, and, and and like Mike's saying, same with beer. You know you, you there's so much of it is is about is about iteration and sort of going okay cool. So because hundred years ago. In the brewery. Well, they certainly didn't have the technology that we have today, did they? And they probably, you know... That, yeah, all right, 100 years ago, they would have had, you know... Hopefully, they would have had some thermometers some places. And they would have had some scales. But they certainly wouldn't have had flow meters. And they wouldn't have had all the lab equipment. And, and they wouldn't have had... Well, I don't know when the hydrometer was invented, to be fair. So I'm not going to say whether they had it or not. But, um, you know, a brewer, it was a highly skilled job. And they would have um you know used their senses they would have you know when the new seasons crop came in for example they would have you know brewed with it they would have tasted the beer they would have checked all the things in to check and then they would have changed it up again and again and again and again constantly iterating and changing the process to get the very best out of the raw materials that they could get out of it as opposed to sort of saying oh well that didn't work um We'll we'll buy a different base malt. They didn't have that luxury back then. They worked with the ingredients to get the very best out of them, and and as there is an element of that in in this heritage range, You've, you you do have to work with them. Um, and in our modern world, where everything is expected to just work, you know the way it's it does with them. Um, all, all, all the the. The things we have in, in, in modern production, um, it's not going to work like that with these malts um, because they are of a different time. And you've got to really, you know, certainly read up on, you know, or, you know, listen to podcasts like this and 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 take the advice of people that have used it before you. But try it and try it again, try it again, and see how you can get the very best out of these ingredients. Um, because there's, you know, there's a real reward in unpacking that um, um, that flavor that exists there um, but it just takes a little bit of time and a little bit of patience, I think that's probably the point I was making, same with bread same with beer, same with distilling, same with malting a bit of patience and a bit of time and um, you can really unlock something quite special I think
1: Patience? Who has time for patience? <laughs> <laughs> tight, right? Yeah, yeah.
4: yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> you can just uh, go down the supermarket. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, pop over uh, like for us, pop over to the little local brewery and buy a uh, buy a six pack. I, I've actually known homebrewers who've uh, walked away from the hobby because they're like, uh, "Why? I can just very easily go and get some fresh beer and be done with it." I'm like, okay, but it's a different mindset. So now let's let's actually talk about because I mean we've talked around these malts. Uh, And in this current series, at least from what I've seen, you guys have four different malts. We've mentioned three of them, two of them in depth, right? So, the, but let's actually dig into like what people can expect from them. And to uh, Mike, to your point and and Colin, you know, what extra care might be needed in order to maximize what they can do. So, y'all, we talked a little about the Chevalier, you know, so, a very old malt, where are you guys recommending that it be used? What sort of steps do we have to take with it, and what can we expect out of it?
2: So, okay, go on, general- Mike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and do jump in at any point, Colin. Um, Don't worry. <laughs> generally, it, it's just showing that little bit more respect. So, mashing within the brewing the brewer's window. Um, again, I'm not up to date on the Fahrenheit, so anywhere between 63 and, and, and 67, 68. But just give it extra time to what you would normally give it. So if you'd normally give it a 60-degree stand, just give it 90. And it'll behave... That's uh,
4: 145
2: to 154 Fahrenheit. Yep. The, uh, yeah, exactly what I was it. thinking. <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, just just give it that time in... in, in um, in the MCB, just to fully convert. But be aware, it's still probably going to stay quite high on the final gravity. Mm-hmm. So it's still probably going to stay maybe two or three um, degrees, so one plateau higher than what you may expect a, a more modern malt to be. So what that allows you to do is also really up the bitterness to balance it. So you can really, really go high on 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 on, on the bittering hop, late hop, um, to really give it some abuse, and you, you know you're still gonna get these amazing marmalade flavors coming through, um, and you're still gonna get the balance from the hops.
4: Yeah. For, well, for, for me, so.
2: that says West Coast IPA.
4: It's like that, like intense bitterness, big malt body as well. Um, yeah. I mean, it's for 100
2: years, it was it like was a, like a <laughs> hundred years, it was the base malt. Sorry, college For hundred years, it was the base for pretty much every IPA that ever left England. Well, it, yeah, it was, which
4: we know was brewed stronger, and brewed mm-hmm. Um Whether that was to survive the journey or for other reasons is lost mm-hmm. in the in the history books. But yeah, absolutely, it was. Um, it's uh, that, well, that uh, was its style
1: yeah yeah lost to history and obscured by brewers' myths that we like to tell each other <laughs> but so this is the Chevalier so I mean really we're expecting a higher residual gravity uh, more uh, more malt flavor. I like that idea of marmalade uh, you, you can lay it in the hops, but just really give it a little bit more time in the mash done to complete its conversion because again, it's not as uh, enzymatically overpowered as uh, American two row. <laughs> exactly.
2: It, it's just longer breakfast.
1: There you go. I like that idea. We're an <laughs> extra cup of coffee. Um. All right, and then you, you all also mentioned Hannah, which we're saying is the original Pilsner malt. So again, are we talking just more time and care, and like what will people get out of it?
2: So Hannah's a little bit different. So the Hannah malt is actually quite well under modified. Okay. Um. It's probably the most unmodified modified malt we've produced, so it, it really could benefit from a 45-degree um, beta-glucan stand mm-hmm. and definitely a 52-degree um, protein stand. Just 10, 15 minutes for each one just to finish that, that malty uh, modification and then just free rise to, to normal well, or rise to normal. Mm-hmm. um brewer's window to finish finish off um the mashing and you're going to get an amazing um it, it's it you get this amazing bready flavor from it and that mm. this it's it's often described as just the Czech flavor in beer so that look, nice little bit of caramel as well
4: yeah it's it's amazing for a for a base malt that's just got you know conventional kilning like standard lager kilning not a particularly high temperature the breadiness that so that i mean the beer that i'm sitting with just now is 100 hannah but it's the it, it is you know I, i'm con- i would be convinced if you'd handed it to me i would say well it's probably got some vienna in there and it's also probably got you know some maybe some wheat in there or something like that mm-hmm. um but this, this beer I'm drinking is 100% of, of that base malt, so it's um, yeah it just it just makes me think I would like to be in Prague right now, essentially <laughs> in a beer cellar with a Keller beer, you know. It's not going to be called a Keller beer, of course, in Prague, but anyway, um, you know, it, it's, it's that style of beer. Um, it's absolutely the, the body and flavour is is astonishing. Yeah, but again, definitely just that step mash program is, is required, which is, mm-hmm. I mean, there's yes. so much amazing um, homebrew equipment now that you can do that sort of thing on, um, which is uh, which is superb. So, um, yeah, that I would I would say to get the best out of it, you're definitely looking at a step program, like Mike said.
1: This even sounds like this might be the the vaunted rare case where one could even argue potentially for a decoction.
4: Yes, Ooh, indeed. And I hate that fact. Word. There's a there's a brewery in California. I will not name yet, uh, but they are um, they're playing around with it and doing some um, full decoctions, and then about three months of cellaring uh, to to assess its uh, to assess its flavour um, for then an upscale hopefully. But it's um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing the results of that. Um, because decoction absolutely has its place. It's an absolute, you know, <laughs> ache to do. Right. Um, but there's, uh, there, you know, there's, there's a, there's a place for it. And you 100%. know what? If you're going to work with a heritage malt like this from the 1840s, then, you know, come on, have a decoction day. <laughs> I think that's exactly it, Colin. I mean, that,
3: that's, that's what it would have had, that's what it would have gone through in the 1850s because it was under modified. So it needed to go through that decoction process. So expectations of being able to do anything other than a step mash, you know, is probably a little unrealistic with it. Do you remember it well, Dave? Yeah, I had hair in those days, Mike.
2: (laughs) (laughs) We did did the decoction as well at Lost and Grounded at the the beginning of the year when we put the first brew through. Um, So we we transferred the... um, two-thirds of the mash allowed it, so and they were boiled the, the remaining um thirds in the, the mash kettle and yeah it it really developed flavor uh, but astonishingly didn't develop any color no. <laughs> so it, it, yeah. it still st- stayed ultra ultra straw in color um and but really brought out again that that caramelly checky flavor
1: see now this is awesome because I have one friend of mine who is he is a dedicated Pilsner fan, you know, all the, and all the Czech beers, right? The Czech lagers are his his jam. He's the only man who's ever actually convinced me to do a triple decoction. I still kind of resent him for that. Um, <laughs> but I, I could see him getting his hands on this Hannah and, and doing some really fantastic things with it. And I I will also clarify for the listeners who have heard me badmouth decoctions again and again over the years. I bad mouth decoctions when it comes to modern malts, because I think it's a dumb waste of time. Yes. <laughs> with with Hannah, it sounds like it would actually be a good use of your time.
4: Absolutely. Yes. yes. 100%. I think, I think we're all, yeah, we're all agreed mm-hmm. on that one. It's a long day, but it's, uh, yeah, it's the, it's the ultimate test of patience, a decoction, and then followed by a lengthy lagering. <laughs> so,
1: well, yeah. and, and don't forget also your ultimate test of how well you can dodge uh, uh, boiling malt. Mm.
2: <laughs> yeah. D-
1: don't get <laughs> don't, don't get boiling malt on your uh, on your body, people. It is not a good <laughs> <Do> idea. <out. laughs> all
4: right. Yeah, so, OSHA warning. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, fortunately, a lot of our listeners are homebrewers, so what does OSHA care? Um, all
4: right. Then the, the next
1: one. You guys had mentioned uh, the floor maltings, number 19. Uh, the the next one in the heritage list is number 19 Maris Otter. So w- what's different from with the number 19 Maris Otter than the Maris Otter I can go get right now? It's
3: between malting and number 19 floor maltings. That's <laughs> the difference. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why it's a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> I spotted that as soon as we did it. I knew there was something different about that straight so, to the quick <laughs> I think I think you, I think we've already discussed really around the fact that the floor moltings does bring something different again you know again you know' when I said earlier on that we've done some some quite sophisticated analysis around volatile compounds between varieties we've also done it between the same variety on different molting plants. we've looked at mari on off of the floor moltings and off of um, more modern plants, and again, now, you do pick up different flavour volatiles mm-hmm. from it, so I think the number nineteen Maris otter, yes, it's, it's still Maris Otter, but it also has some, you know, some differences in flavour to the to the Otter that's gone through the, the modern saladin style plants.
4: Yeah. It's it's Maris otter just more so,
3: just more so, yeah, Even more better
4: so, Maris Otter. And Dave, the, I mean, the major difference there in terms of the. Process. I guess it's two Really, there's a slightly longer germination because we're not forcing air across the germination floor yeah. like we would in yeah. a modern plant. But yeah. the kilning is quite different as well Yeah, I mean, a lot
3: of it is all down to air flows. I mean on the on the on the floor. Most we you know we're not pushing air through the bed, as we are in the in the more modern plants. So I think there's a retention of volatiles which otherwise you might you might blow out from the bed during germination. And then when we get onto the kiln, and the number 19 kiln is still a natural draft kiln. So we effectively light a fire underneath it and allow the hot air to rise for, for three days to do the drying phase. So again, we're not pushing those huge volumes of air that we would be through a, through a modern kiln. And I think you know, that all contributes to the retention of flavour that maybe we do lose on on some of the other plants that we have
2: it's shallower beds as well, Dave, isn't it? All the way through. Oh absolutely. The yeah, floor
3: malting, yeah, the floor moulding is maybe you yeah, four, three or four inches. And the, the kiln is is similarly not much deeper than deeper than that.
1: And so just from a practical standpoint, um, between the number nineteen Marisotter and regular marisotter, Mike, you'd already said that Marisotter is a dream to use in the very are there any any changes, practically speaking, from a brewing point of view, or, or do we just run with this like we would normally run? No. Uh,
2: no number 19, Marisotto is, mm-hmm. is, is it's slightly more modified mm-hmm. than what standard pneumatic number 19 would be, but you generally treat it the same um, mm-hmm. through the brewery. It's going to be nice to you, and it's going to give... We've already said that Marisota gives this complexity compared mm-hmm. to standard malts, and then this number 19 gives an added complexity over the complexity. Uh, but brewing is, is pretty much the same, there's nothing special.
1: So, this is your, your starter kit, Heritage Malt. So, but I'm also very excited to play with it because yeah. I, I like the idea of Marisota, but more um it,
2: it, it is it's it, it's marisotta plus there
1: you go we'll, we'll take it and then the very last of the heritage malts that that I, that i've seen so far is the plumage archer you guys had referenced it earlier give me some more background on it
4: give me like what we do with it and what flavors can we expect dave can you give a bit of the history on the plumage because it's uh, okay. it's pretty fascinating yeah. actually it is it's a little bit of
3: history on plumage archer uh I mean, the laws of genetic inheritance were, were, were discovered by Mendel back in the 1860s, and then his work was kind of lost until the early 1900s when people discovered that if you took two parents and, uh, and crossed them, you got an offspring which had, you know, inherited some of the characteristics from one parent and some from from the other parent. And it was really only in the early 1900s that people started to apply that to to plant breeding. And the very famous Dr. Bevan. Who was, uh, who was based at Warminster in the west of England. He bred plumage archer by taking plumage as one parent and archer as the other parent and, uh, innovatively called the offspring plumage archer, uh, and created what was the first sort of deliberately bred variety. So the sort of sequence is that up to that point, as we said, Chevalier was pretty dominant and it was really plumage archer, which then knocked Chevalier off the top of the league because of its better performance for the, for the farmer, like giving better yields and better better performance against disease and lodging and other agronomic characteristics, and also bringing forward to the malts and the brewer in a highly capable uh, variety. As I said, it, it was national listed in the, in the UK in the 1930s, and it continued in, in use right through to the, to the late 1960s. So it clearly had attributes which were, which were favorable to, you know, a number of beer types that were being produced in the U.K. At that time. And also for the distillers as well. A lot of it would have gone from England up into Scotland for, for distilling use.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, all right. and so, I mean, I love the fact that we have kind of a continuous line then, right? You know, we've got the Choy, the Plumage, and, and then the Maris uh, with this weird side journey
3: over to the Czech Republic. Not forgetting, of course, that Archer is a grandparent of Mermis Otter. Yeah.
1: Well, and and, and actually, for listeners, if you go back and you listen a while ago, we had the episode uh, where we talked about Mechagrade, and we talked to Seth, and he was doing, uh, working with Oregon State University to do a whole, here, let's develop some new public barley varieties. And they got in a lot into the various crossings that they were doing with, like, Uh, What Violetta, Full Pint, Maris Otter, which one was the, the, you know, like, what order was the breeding in, you know, in terms of parent and mother plants, uh, and testing out all those various barley varieties, and so I thought that was a first real interesting glimpse to see that for our our listeners, and now we get to see, with uh, the plumage here, where, in a lot of ways, that started, so... I kinda of love this through line of history and it's all told in told in malt. <laughs> it's yeah,
4: it's and it's but it's also a function of the um, of the environment that that, that yep. these varieties have been brought up in. I think it's really interesting what Oregon State have been doing it with, with Cold Point and um, you know, finding varieties that really work in that part of the world because the terroir is obviously vastly different in the Pacific Northwest as it is to the to the southeast of England. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a there's a very good reason that our 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 founders, the, the Smith brothers, Frederick and George, established themselves as maltsters in Norfolk, because the county, you know, especially North Norfolk, where we're based, has got this incredible landscape, incredible environment for growing growing these varieties. Um, Dave, Dave, you're you're a native, so you can speak to it a little bit more than than a than a interloper Scot like me. But you know the the agricultural history and and these varieties are really they're kind of inextricably linked to the
3: local area, aren't they? Oh, that's oh, absolutely. I mean, I think we would we would argue that North Norfolk is the best area in the world to grow to grow molting barley. Uh, I mean, the whole the county is really is surrounded by also on you know on three sides of it when I mean, it's a very gentle atmosphere when the when the when the crops are maturing you know we have some fairly sort of damp days you know, sea air sea breezes it you know it allows a quite a mellow crop to to develop the soils are very light which is precisely what barley barley likes so i think we you know we are blessed here with you know really with some of the best barley growing conditions that you can that you can find, and that's really manifests itself in the, the quality of the barley that we harvest each year. I
4: I also find it really fascinating that the environment, you know, for growing these barley varieties essentially, you know, is, is also li- well, it is, is entirely linked to the the brewing technology that developed within the UK as well. So you know, there's a there's a very good reason. That we have, you know, that, that that the English brewing style for centuries has been a single temperature mash, It's because the, the 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 dominant barley growing areas in in England are very very free draining soils. They don't hold on to the protein, they don't hold on to the nitrogen, onto the nutrients, and so you're left with a crop that's pretty you know pretty much low, you know, quite low in nitrogen, and therefore you know w- will modify well in the brew house in the, sorry in the malt house, and then once you move it across to the brew house then it it's just a dawdle whereas these poor Europeans <laughs> with their barley varieties that were really steely, <coughs> you know lots of protein lots of uh, you know it, it required a hell of a lot more effort um to get it to get the to get the sugar out of there and to unlock it from the protein matrix. And the cell walls in the malting process, and then of course, once you bring it into the brew house, well, they had to develop even more complicated technology around louder tons and um, decoction and all these sorts of things um, because of because of the types of barley that they were working with. Um, I just I just find that whole kind of the connection between the land and what actually got built in the brew house and how you operated your brewery are inextricably linked. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating to me.
2: Well, and I think you see that. Lots of fantastic technology. So lots of fantastic technology in stainless steel to finish the uh monster's job. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well and I do think it's it's tied to in a lot of ways the way that we talked about styles being sort of locally endemic, right? Yeah, you know, the techniques endemic to what's happening locally, the styles you know, at least before people figured out how to manipulate water and other ingredients in, in certain ways. You know, that's the reason why you saw dark beers in certain areas. That's why you saw various flavor profiles developing in areas. Now, of course, I want to sit down and I'm, I, I want to go do some reading and go, okay, so here in the U.S., a good portion of our our barley is grown in the upper, upper Midwest, right? You know, and how does that compare to you know, where barley is grown in England versus where it's grown in the continental continental Europe? Uh, and start to dig in like, okay, wait, what, what sort of difference does that make? Dang, now I'm going to have to do reading.
4: <laughs> have you guys, uh, have you read the, the book um, American Brew? I think it's called American Brew, so, um, which is kind of all about the history of, of, of brewing in, in America. And, um, the you know, so many people think of um, non-malted materials as being, you know, as adjuncts, like being a dirty word. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the when the German immigrants moved across to the U.S. and they, 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 they encountered six-row um, and oh, started trying to normal. use it in the, um, to produce lager, it was a complete disaster. Yep. There was so much protein that never produced a clear beer. So it was really only then that they started to incorporate corn. And by incorporating corn, they were able to reduce the fan content, bring the, pro- the overall protein down, and actually produce some really beautiful-looking beers. Um but unfortunately, that you know that then became a, a cost maneuver, you know, in in you know in the in the industrialized age, um, and became synonymous with cost reduction and a lack of flavor. But actually, um, in the early days, it was all down to the fact that the the, the, the barley just wasn't right, and mm-hmm. so other ingredients had to be introduced to um, to, to manipulate the the chemistry. I, again, I find all of that absolutely fascinating. So, so yeah, do, the beers are very much a product of the, of the landscape. Mm, um, absolutely.
1: Yes, and as I like to remind people that until at least uh, Ambev bought uh, Anheuser-Busch, the most expensive ingredient in Budweiser was the rice. Mm. <laughs> there you go. Yeah.
3: Mm.
1: Well, because they used a specially grown variety of rice that was only grown in one part of the world, and they only took the top part of the crop. So it was the most expensive thing they had. Um,
4: I stand corrected. The book is called Ambitious Brew, and I would oh, yeah. highly recommend it. Is by Maureen Ogle. Yeah, yeah. Maureen's book. book is is really
1: fantastic. And I think, if I remember correctly, she published a second edition of it, or she was trying to. Oh, uh,
4: awesome. Okay, I'm gonna look yeah. out for that. Great.
1: All right. So we've got the, these four molds the Chevalier, the Hannah, the Number no. 19 Maris and the Plumage Archer. These are all available. And I, I, I know you guys had said, hey, you know, it takes a decade to. To develop a barley variety and get it out into the world how long did it take you y'all you to bring these four malts back from the quote-unquote dead
3: maybe hey, you've been there every uh, step of the yeah. journey yep yeah uh i mean i think chevalier it kind of predates my time at chriske probably goes back to about 2010 i think okay. and it was kind of uh, fortuitous i suppose in many ways I mean, we're quite blessed. I'm sitting, talking to you this evening from the city of Norwich uh, in Norfolk. And there's a number of plant science research institutes in, associated with the university here, and uh, one of which is the John Innes Centre. Uh, and they were looking for resistance to fusarium, which is a disease of barley and other cereals. Uh, it's quite prevalent in some parts of the world, some parts of the US, um, get hit with fusarium and it, it leads to contamination of the, of the grain. So we're looking for sources of fusarium resistance and also fortunately for the, for, for us we have a, a, what's described as the germplasm Resource Unit uh, the John Innes Centre which is a, effectively a seed bank and uh, they, the researchers, the, the John Innes, were able to go into the seed bank take a handful of seeds of a, of a number of different uh Let's not call them varieties, but of the, of the, uh, of the, of the which have been lodged there, one of which was Chevalier. And they then tested them for Fusarium resistance. And lo and behold, they found that Chevalier was resistant to Fusarium. Mm. But the guys that were doing the work were also enthusiastic brewers having a small brewery of their own. And, and they also knew the history behind Chevalier. And you only really need to read any of the sort of the classic. Brewing and malting books, you'll see Chevalier gets you know, very, very strong mentions in those books. So they approached us as the local maltster and asked us if we were interested in, you know, in doing some work with Chevalier And we did literally start with just a handful of grains, which over the course of you know, three or four years were, 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 were bulked up at each harvest until we had sufficient to, uh, you know, to grow a small plot. And our very first malting, I remember, was. 500 kilos of, uh, of Chevalier on the floors. Uh, a little area was set aside whilst we were doing another batch of another variety. And a little bit of Chevalier went into the kiln in a wooden box, in a box frame. And, uh, and that, that, that malt came out. And obviously, we were all heavily expectant as to what the analysis would look like. And the analysis looked remarkably like a modern variety, with the exception of the extract being, being quite a bit lower. And uh, just from that 500 kilos, you know, some, some really nice beers were brewed. And, it's, you know, and now we're harvesting, you know, two, 200 tons a year. It's never going to be big volumes. We're not interested in in big volumes. Uh, I mean, it's expensive to grow. We have to work with specialist specialist growers, uh, compensate them for the yield. Uh, deficiency that they're getting gross is if they were growing a modern variety. But you know, they, they enjoy being part of the story as well so you know you're looking at you know three to you know and then next one was was hannah uh and we got we shortcut that slightly because we were flying it to new zealand to get a second harvest out of the same year so that we were able to reduce the time period to uh, to bring it to to get enough seed to actually get into commercial production but it was still probably five years uh, before we had sufficient hannah to uh, you know, to make it widely available
1: by the way, I, I just want to say I love the fact that we're talking about regrowing heritage malts and also flying it across the globe in order to speed up.
3: <laughs> mm. Yeah, it doesn't do it doesn't do its carbon footprint a look good, but it um, we only had to do it twice, I think. So.
1: Well, so again, I mean, we're st- we're still talking multiple multiple years even even trying to, you know, cheat through things and I I do I do appreciate the fact that you guys were talking about. Uh, yeah, you know, there's a different form of compensation for the farmers, because again, part of the reason that uh, these varieties go out is various things, but largely yield. Mm. And so, yeah, the, these older malts will have less yield. But I also love the fact that we have them in our toolkit again. I like this, because again, I can go and I can go look at one of the recipes that Ron is uh, pulling out of the brewing logs and sort of converting into sort of modern formats, and maybe stand a a hair's chance of actually making something that's right, you know, according to that recipe, just by using this different uh, variety. So, all right, well, I know that we've had you guys on here for a good long while. I'm jealous of the fact that you all are getting to have a beer right now. Is there anything else that you feel like our listeners should know about the Heritage Malts, about, you know, using these, about, I mean anything
3: dealing with this program, or Crisp even. I think the key thing is to just enjoy, enjoy them, enjoy brewing yeah. with them, enjoy drinking the beers with them. I mean, I've been fortunate. I've had my Hannah beer, um, my second beer while well, we've been talking. I've had a Mary beer, a tribute from uh, from St Austell Brewery. You know, they just they just taste so they just taste so good. So uh, you know, just just enjoy using them.
0: I think what I intend to do is brew the same recipe using all three of them, so I can compare the uh, the flavors, yeah. you know, kind of I on like a that. level playing field.
3: Nice. Yeah. We've had that. We've had that done by one brewer who did uh, plumage the same beer with Plumage Arts and with Chevalier, and they did taste distinctly different. They did indeed. Under cool. Under yeah. the same. Yeah. 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 Uh,
0: yeah. I can't wait. And yeah. reach
4: out to us as well, you know. Um, I think that sometimes the the malting companies can seem like these behemoths, um, these huge companies. But in reality, there's there's not that many of us um, involved in this story. And um, the maltsters, we we create something and we put it out there. But of course, it's not the end product. You know, it would be a sad, sad story if uh, people were sitting in pubs munching on on pints of uh, of, uh, of malt kernels um have you gotta turn it into some beer um so we we want to hear uh, from from everyone out there um who's who's using these malts and um, how did how did the brew go you know what what recipes were you brewing with it you know what beers were you making with it what worked what didn't work um because we are you know we're we brought this brought these varieties back from the dead basically um and we've got some you know fairly good ideas about how we think. You know they could be used, um, but you know craft brewing is all about um, it's all about reinvention. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, keep us updated. Connect with us on social media, or reach out via email, or, or, or whatever, and um, or or indeed through BSG, um, our distributor in, in in the USA and in Canada, and um, and tell us how you get on with them because we're we're absolutely fascinated uh, by it and. And I suppose I would get why, I know it's not necessarily the topic of the, of the podcast, but I would get in my, my, um, my ore for a bit of distilling as well. And, um, mm. if, if there are distillers out there, then, then try these heritage varieties for producing spirit because we we know that they, you know, apart from the Hannah, um, but, but that each of these other UK varieties were used extensively in the distilling industry. During the 19th and 20th centuries, um, and that, uh, that they all produce a real, a really distinct character, um, unique characters, characteristics within New Make Spirit for, um, for, for whiskey production. So, um, you know, add, add it to, to a, to a distilling grist as well and see how you get on. Um, it's amazing. The similarities between the brewing characteristics and the distilling characteristics, actually. Yeah. Um, so, and yeah. for
1: for legal purposes, I'll, I'll remind our listeners that only applies to our listeners in New Zealand at home. And <laughs>
4: the the, uh, the professional distillers yeah. out there, of course. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, <clears throat> can I just add to that that yeah. um, just just experiment with them. Don't just think. Oh, the heritage malts. We have to brew heritage beers. So, taste the grain, make some malt teas, mix it with other different things, and just see what happens. Taste them against modern grains and and just experiment. They're there, it's it's a toolkit for everyone to use and and for you to just have fun with. Um, So, don't be scared of them. Don't think you have to brew a a heritage beer. They're fantastic with any kind of modern beer. Just give it a go.
1: I love it. Uh, although I will uh, throw a side eye at anybody who decides to throw uh, f- fruit uh, puree and lactose at these. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Exactly. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
2: Don't do that. And we'll uh, ah. we'll
4: keep we'll keep working away with with our farmers, and we'll um we'll, we'll um yeah we've got some potentially got some other things up our sleeve for the future. As well, so there's um, there's always things to be explored in the in the germplasm unit, so we'll keep exploring it. as long as um, the brewers out there are willing to um, willing to try these these amazing ingredients and, and create some awesome beers with them.
1: That sounds great to me and folks remember, go out there support your good malt because after all, if you're not using a good base malt, you might as well be drinking seltzer. <laughs> and for
2: everybody oh God, God, don't do
0: that. <laughs> oh, <Jesus.
1: laughs> uh, emails emails will ensue, I'm guessing, for me saying that. Um but
0: uh, again, to your, got
4: <laughs>
1: And to uh, to your point, Colin, uh these malts are available via BSG here in the States. So for anybody who is here in the States, if your homebrew shop has a relationship for instance with BSG, which I'm gonna assume most of them will they should be able to special order these malts for you. You may want to, you know, if you're not going to go buy a full sack, you may want to talk to a buddy or two and get a deal in on this. I think these are exciting. You guys know I love to play around with new ingredients, new pieces of the toolkit, and I can't
4: wait. Absolutely. And um, I'm also going to throw it there that um, uh, for... Can, can we do a giveaway on the show? Is that allowed? <laughs> it's not going to be malt. It's not going to be malt. It's going to be merch. Is that? I'm, I'm fine with that. Denny, oh, I think you're fine. Are we okay with this? Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, okay. So if we, um, for the first five homebrewers that brew with these heritage malts that get in touch with us over social media, we're going to, we're going to send you a limited edition crisp flat cap. <laughs> we found a photograph from 1901 which had the entire malting staff um, in front of our Great Ryder maltings and they're all wearing basically Peaky Blinder hats um, and we're like, those are awesome, <laughs> we're, we're going to have those as a piece of merch. So we had a couple of hundred made, um, they're sitting in our store and so I'm going to give five away and um, we'll post them out, um, get in touch via social media um, and we will... Um, and we will, we will give those away to the first five that are able to show us that they've them, and tell us how they got on with their heritage molds.
1: Awesome. And we'll make sure Ooh. to include all the social media links I think
4: in that, the in the post. So We'll send you guys some as well. <laughs> okay,
2: because I'm,
1: oh, I'm, great. I'm literally sitting here holding my grandfather's flat cap, uh, a nice woolen flat cap from the 1920s.
0: Nice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, Denny, anything else that we need to cover? I think we're good, right?
0: Yeah, man, I just want to thank you guys for taking all this time with us. It's uh, it's great. We're going to make an entire show out of this, and uh, we'll definitely let you know when it's on so you can uh, go back and revisit things and cringe at what you said.
4: <laughs> I can't help it. Mean, there's going to be a lot of cringing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: do <laughs> uh, always when you hear
0: yourself. But we, in the we, meanwhile,
1: you all need to enjoy those awesome beers.
3: It was a winding <laughs> journey, I think, through our uh,
4: through our um, yeah. That's what you get on a Friday evening. Yeah. <laughs> from <laughs> us, you
0: know.
4: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't the most um yeah the most logical order that we went through things, but uh, hopefully that was uh yeah that was useful and um yeah we would yeah we we would love to see the homebrew community take to this because yeah. um this is really the first um the first thing we've kind of done an outreach on it so. Um, to to that, commun- that specific community, so um, we're excited to see what people think of them. Ultimately, yeah. Oh.
1: Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. this. Is, this is definitely next up in my pipeline, and I promise I won't make a saison out of them.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Go for it, though.
0: Why not? I'm, I'm no. going to start making West Coast IPAs with all of them because that's generally what I make, and I think that'd be a good test bed.
4: I think the yeah, Chevalier well, is going to work not? well with that. I think the Plumage Archer yeah, actually would make an awesome saison. Mm. I genuinely, yeah. as as would yeah. number nineteen. But mm. maybe well, even but... like a fifty-fifty blend of
2: Maris and Plumage Archer that could be cool as well. So, oh. yeah, I love it. We've we've been searching up the uh, we, we've been serving up today the Plumage Archer uh, ESB that we brewed at um, at Cheshire Brewery of so, so I'm over in France at the, the Salon de Bressier. So I've been serving up this ESB to all the Frenchies through a, a proper um, cask hand pump. And, you know, it's it's gone down really, really well. It's, it's just awesome. So just just play with them.
1: Stop, you're oh. making me thirsty.
2: <laughs> <laughs> cask beer. Yeah, we didn't get into that. <laughs>
4: serving method, yeah. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. In Ooh. wood as well, Colin. It's in wood. Ooh. Well. Oh. Maybe we so, need to do an go. episode on maybe we need to do an episode on cask beer guys. I uh, I'm I'm
1: down. I I've still the club actually currently has my engine. Uh but I do I, I do have a hand pump.
4: Very cool. All right. Very cool. Uh
1: I think what we're wanna do, Denny, correct me if I'm wrong is but when when we finish brewing with these, uh we'll probably wanna do a revisit, right?
0: Yeah, if you guys are up for that, we would love to talk to you after we've had a chance to brew with them.
4: Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, good.
0: And, and maybe we can even email you some.
4: <laughs> you, can e- you can email us some. You can email us some. Yeah, we'll or if we, snow. if we, we've never attended a homebrew con, but I, I, oh. I'm very, very tempted to come out if it's, if it's going to happen next June, or, or get, get one of our team out to it because I think it'd be awesome to be at that. So, you know we could, we could potentially share some beers at
0: that. That would be great. Oh, we'll be be other, great. That would be great. I
4: can be a show for Collin. I thought you might say that.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, only if you
2: get me a stroke. <laughs> all
4: right. Well, gentlemen, well thank I you once uh... again,
0: gentlemen. Uh, it's been a real pleasure, and I've learned a ton of stuff. So uh, have a wonderful weekend and have another beer.
3: Good. Thanks, guys. It's been, been awesome. <laughs>
4: thanks. And, thank, uh, and thanks, Mike and Dave, for for, uh, for your time on a Friday evening as well. Uh, no, pleasure. Absolutely pleasure. Good
1: yeah. luck. Like, it's always fun to be able to talk beer
2: who needs sleep.
1: All right. Well, Hey, look, if you guys are still here, then I hope that you had as much fun listening to that conversation as we had having that conversation. Uh, I would highly recommend two things. Go back, listen to it again with a pint of beer and also go and contact your local homebrew shop or nearest person that you know, who has a BSG contract and try and get your hands on some of these malts. Uh, I know Denny, what you're you're really looking forward to playing around
0: with the Chevalier, right? I'm really looking forward to all four of them, but uh, for for at least three, the Chevalier, the uh, Plumage Archer, and the uh, Maris Otter, I'm going to make the same IPA recipe, a West Coast IPA recipe, believe it or not, and uh, and see how that compares, and then I'll probably take the Hana and uh, make a pills out of that, and God help me, I might even do a decoction.
1: Good Lord, stranger things have happened, and I'm going to take some of that, Hannah. I'm going to split it off to my good buddy John Aitchison, who is the Pilsner fanatic. Was one of those guys who almost, almost won the Pilsner Kell Brewmaster competition that Annie ended up winning. <laughs> you know, he was in the finals, and so I'm going to have him do the Pilsner because why not go to an expert? And I think I'm actually going to take that Hannah and, and make a uh, make a saison with it. I
0: was going to say, man, I, why I would expect you to do that
1: so I can't wait. And y'all will be able to hear more adventures with this as we're going on. As we said earlier, I expect in probably one of the next upcoming episodes. I'll even do a little bit of a malt tasting to walk you guys through doing the steep test and also to give you some of my initial impressions. Wow. I can't
0: wait for that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I guess that's about it for this episode. So thank you all for listening to experimental brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the homebrewing subreddit and the Slack homebrewing channel. You can usually find me over at the uh, AHA forum or on Facebook. If you want to ask us questions, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave at us, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com, or if you want to get a hold of us each individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And, of course, you can always send us a text, a voicemail at 626-765-1-A-L. That's 626-765-1253. So, until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.